Opinionated analysis of every KISS release. I am your host, Ryo V, and I thank you for taking the time to join me today for episode 54, Kiss My Ass. Before we get into the album analysis, if you like the podcast, please subscribe. If you haven't already done so, please leave a review on iTunes. Positive reviews and subscriptions help other KISS fans to find this podcast. If you have any comments, you want to provide any feedback, you can reach me at psychocircuspodcast at gmail.com. That's psychocircuspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at RyoV on Twitter. That's at R-Y-O-V-I-E on Twitter. Today's communication comes from the latest news in the world of KISS. As most of you fans have probably heard by now, Ace was out and about discussing how he would join KISS again if the price is right, while taking a dig at Tommy Thayer. Ace proclaimed that he wouldn't settle for Tommy Thayer money, but he would love to rejoin the band for a reunion tour. Not much else was said, and that statement is not really the crux of the communication, but it did lead me to a question that I want to ask you, the fans. And that would be KISS fans. Fans of KISS, not fans of the Psycho Circus podcast, although you may be one and the same. Anyway, this is what I want to ask you, the KISS fan. If KISS finished the End of the Road tour, so they finished their final farewell, never going to do it again tour, and then announced a reunion tour with Ace and Peter, would you go? Would you go to that reunion tour after they had finished this final tour ever? I mean, personally, I'd be pretty ticked off because I just went to what was supposed to be their final tour ever and I saw multiple shows and I spent money on multiple shows but I know myself if there was a reunion show with Ace and Peter in my area excuse me of course I would go I wouldn't be able to help myself and I'd be mad and I'd complain about having to shell out the $200 or $300 or whatever it is to go to the show but I know that I would go anyway and it's just, just, it's just how it would be. But what about you? Would you go? What would your price cap be? And how far would you travel to see a Kiss reunion tour with Ace and Peter after they've finished the End of the Road tour? How far would you go? And how many times would you go? Let me know. Drop me a line via the usual methods. And now let's get to the album analysis. So Kiss My Ass was released on June 21st, 1994 on Mercury Records. The bands and the band members for this album are as follows. Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Lenny Kravitz, Stevie Wonder, 
Garth Brooks, Anthrax, Gin Blossoms, Toad the Wet Sprocket, Shandy's Addiction, Dinosaur Jr., Extreme, The Lemonheads, The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, and Yoshiki. The album was produced by multiple producers that are going to be listed in each song. Normally I tell you who produced the album, uh, but this time around I felt it would be best to list each producer as the song comes up. Alright, so the track listing for this album is as follows. Deuce, followed by Hard Luck Woman, followed by She, followed by Christine 16, Rock and Roll All Night, Calling Dr. Love, Going Blind, Strutter, Plaster Caster, Detroit Rock City, and the album wraps up with Black Diamond. So what can I say about this record that that won't sound uber fanboy? Probably nothing. So, <coughs> excuse me, I'm just going to be upfront and out with it. I absolutely love this album. And I think it's one of the greatest gems in my entire KISS collection. Now, it certainly did not start out that way. And when I first heard the album, I thought it was okay at best but over the months and years that I had listened to it and allowed it to age and allowed it to grow on me as I mellowed as I mellowed and aged I realized what a magnificent album this truly is and now it's one of my favorite pieces of recorded music in my entire Kiss collection perhaps it was the need for something different and new in my Kiss catalog I mean, that was the reason I started seeking out bootlegs. I'd already listened to everything KISS produced, delved into the deep cuts, and played everything they had to offer over and over again. And after that, it was time to find bootlegs with different live versions of their songs. And then I moved on to covers. And that's where I rediscovered this album, Kiss My Ass. Yes, I picked this up when it first came out. If for no other reason than the fact that I was really into Lenny Kravitz at the time this disc was released, and he had a song on it. But it was a Kiss record, so of course it was getting added to my collection. I mean, by that point, I owned every official Kiss release, so this had to be purchased on principle alone. And I ended up getting it on CD and cassette, because the cassette had a bonus track of Unholy covered by a German band and sung in German. I found that at a record show, or maybe it was at a KISS convention, I don't remember which, and I was happy to add that to my collection. So I have this album in two formats, both, actually, I believe, I haven't looked in a while, but I believe I might have this in three formats, because I think I have the vinyl version of this as well. I have a few vinyl KISS albums that I saved over the years, and and when new uh, KISS albums were being re-released on vinyl way back, well, not way back when, but, you know, back in the... I think mid-90s they started re-releasing them on vinyl. Like, I have unplugged on vinyl. Anyway, I think I have a vinyl version of this album as well. So that's three versions of Kiss My Ass that I own. The album itself was a very daunting project for the band and and somewhat self-serving. I mean, tribute albums had started getting some traction in the rock world, and of course Kiss wanted to cash in on that trend, and, and they were ahead of the curve. After the success of this record... 
<coughs> excuse me, a Black Sabbath tribute and a Led Zeppelin tribute would soon follow, utilizing the same format. Get popular bands from the day to record some of the most beloved songs of the artist. Now, in Kiss's case, the artists were all over the map. They weren't just hard rock artists. There was country. There was orchestra, there was ska, there was a little bit of everything. And maybe that's why some folks hate the album. Yes, there are haters out there who think Kiss My Ass is the worst piece of garbage the band was ever involved in. Now, I tend to lean the other way, but as I stated earlier, it wasn't always that way. I was not a huge fan when I first heard this record. I didn't particularly care for Garth Brooks being on there. I wasn't enthralled with the Toad the Wet Sprockets version of Rock and Roll All Night, and I thought that the Black Diamond cover by Yoshiki was was an absolute throwaway. I feel the complete opposite these days. When the album was being worked on, there were all sorts of rumors about who was going to be involved. Nine Inch Nails, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, and Ozzy Osbourne were all supposed to appear on the record, and they did not. Either their version of the song wasn't chosen, or the record company of the band asked them not to help promote another label, and thus the song was never added. There's even a missing in action page in the booklet that mentions all of the bands who could have appeared on the record. Gene was in typical fashion when the record was released. Uh, He gushed over how all of these bands were influenced by Kiss, including the ones that were not on the record, and how everybody wanted to contribute to a Kiss covers album. He went on and on about how none of these bands would exist without Kiss. And while there may be nuggets of truth there, it is not as profound as Gene made it out to be. Most of the bands would have come to fruition one way or the other. Yes, KISS may have influenced them, probably did, and KISS may be the reason that one or two of them learned their instrument and formed a band, but they were definitely not the only reason. They were, all, they were one of many factors that played out. And the bottom line is that Kiss My Ass is a great addition to the Kiss collection. As I mentioned, it's one of the true gems in my abundance of Kiss recordings, and I am extremely grateful that the band put this project out. As I mentioned, it took a long time for me to appreciate it the way I do these days, but I'm glad that I gave it the time, because now I enjoy it like a finely aged wine or scotch. It's different from my daily drink, but when consumed... It's enjoyed so much more. All right. I have much to say about the album cover and the booklet. Uh, First and foremost being the lack of Ace Frehley's makeup on the cover. And we'll get to that more in a moment. Now, the album cover depicts a family sitting at a dinner table saying grace. There's a large image of the American flag in the background um, in Australia, Canada, and Japan. It was the flag of those respective countries for that, those particular releases. The father is dressed in a suit wearing Paul Stanley makeup. To his left is the daughter in a pink dress wearing jeans makeup. The mother is to the left of the daughter wearing a violet blouse and has Peter's makeup on, although we only see the left side of her face and to her left is the son (coughs) wearing a green and white checkered collar shirt and he is painted in makeup that is not aces 
Only the right side of his face is revealed, but his makeup appears to be the early version of the Lone Ranger mask that Paul did at the very beginning of the band's career. And then this makeup has the color of Vinnie Vincent's Egyptian Ankh, that gold color. So maybe, perhaps, it's a hybrid of the two. Whatever the case, it's not Ace, and it's rather annoying. Now, the reason for not including Ace's makeup is due to the fact that the band did not get the rights to Ace's makeup cleared in time for the CD release. So they had to go in another direction. Now, I don't know if that means Ace was asking for a lot of money, if he even held the rights at the time, or if there was some other sort of holdup. But whatever the reason, it makes the cover look incomplete. I mean, I always thought the band should re-release this record with a new cover now that they have the rights to to the Ace makeup. Maybe one day they will, and maybe they'll also include those songs that were not included. Maybe do a double disc release, you know? That's a money grab, Gene. Gene likes grabbing the money when he can. Do a double disc release of this, um, you know, or or double disc and include the the DVD uh, video you know, the making of or whatever, and, um, you know, charge 25, 30 bucks for it, boom, easy peasy money there, just, just the way he likes it, uh, okay, the album title is splayed across the top, um, in a white bold font over a red background, and then across the flag in clear block letters, the title is spelled out again, Now, there's no need to put the band name on this one, as it's already in the title and we know who it is due to the makeup as for what's for dinner it looks like the family is about to eat a raw roast with no other accompaniments remind me not to accept any dinner invitations from that family the father doesn't even have a plate in front of him so maybe he's not going to eat the tablecloth is a greenish gray color with white leaves embroidered throughout um, just something I, I happen to notice. And then at the bottom of the cover are the words Classic Kiss Regrooved in bold and white font with the same red backdrop as the title on top. There, then there's a listing of all the bands that are included on the album. And this is a pretty interesting album cover. I mean, any album cover that you can stare at for multiple minutes and still pick up new minutia, in my opinion, is a worthy cover. And I think the mark was hit here. I don't know if the family is giving thanks to God or giving thanks to Kiss, but it is a catchy image and one you're definitely going to look at multiple times over. You know, Ace Freely makeup not included aside, it's still... An interesting enough, an, a strange enough, an esoteric enough cover that you're going to want to look at it over and over again. Now, once we get past the album cover, there's an entire booklet to open and enjoy. And unfolding the booklet from the CD reveals several pictures of fan tattoos. And I thought that was pretty neat. And honestly, some of the tattoos are absolutely amazing. There's a particular one of Gene taken from his solo album cover that is astonishing. Whoever did the ink work... They were a true talent. And tattoos are something I've always considered getting, but my fear of needles has prevented me. Yes, it is a true phobia of mine due to an incident at the dentist when I was a kid. However, if I was not afraid of needles, I always wanted to have a jean head on my left arm and a Paul head on my right arm. 
upper arm for both, um, you know, so they would be covered when I was in my professional working world. Um, but, you know, both the, the solo album covers one on each upper arm. Alas, it uh, never happened, and it probably never will, because I don't see getting over my needle phobia anytime soon. Now, further flipping through the booklet leads us to the aforementioned Missing in Action page, and this is where the list of all the bands that were going to be involved in the tribute are included. Some of the bands listed really made me wonder what their version of a Kiss song would sound like, and which song would they have chosen? Tears for Fears? Run DMC? Public Enemy? Ozzy? Stone Temple Pilots? Pantera? I would have loved hearing their versions of a Kiss song. Alas, it wasn't meant to be for one reason or another. The rest of the booklet contains the lyrics to the songs and the usual liner notes. And um, then on the back of the booklet, there's an ad for you to order your copy of Kistery, a limited numbered edition of the book personally signed by Kiss for only $149.95 plus $9 shipping. This could be yours. And as usual, I look at the price tag and said, these guys are out of their minds. And to this day, I do not own a copy of Kistery. And I may rectify that one day. Who knows? I mean, provided I can find a copy online at an affordable price, which seems very hard to do. But $150 back then for me, I mean, I was I was a poor working man. I was working two jobs just to pay the rent. $150 was probably a month's worth of groceries. I just couldn't justify the cost. Um, and now, you know, like I said, you can't find them on eBay for like less than six, seven hundred dollars. So, but any fan wants to send me a copy, um, reach out to me. I'll happily provide you a mailing address <laughs> to where history can be sent. All right, let's get into the song breakdown for this album. And the first song on the album is Deuce, and this was written by Gene Simmons, sung by Lenny Kravitz. Produced by Lenny Kravitz, and then additional musicians include Stevie Wonder on the harmonica. And it's the harmonica by Stevie Wonder that really makes this song. As as the opening track of the record, this song shows what the tone and the style of the album is going to be like. I mean, these are not going to be exact copies of the songs recorded by star artists of the day. These are going to be the artist's interpretation of the songs, molded into the way they wanted them to be to fit their musical style. Lenny Kravitz took Deuce, the iconic classic Kiss song from the debut album, and he turned it into a funk and soul monster. And while I will admit that when I first heard this version, I was not overly fond of it, these days it is one of my favorite tracks on the record. I mean, I was against the change at first. Makes sense. I had expectations going into this record, and with expectations comes disappointment. Usually because we can't see beyond what we had hoped for. But listening to this with an open ear would have shown me what a masterpiece this song is. Yeah, Lenny's vocals are a little flat, but that's how Lenny sings. He doesn't go up and down in a range on a lot of his songs. He stays even keel. 
And he drafted Stevie Wonder to do the harmonica, which added the spice the song needed. And man, can Stevie Wonder play harmonica. His harp jam is insane. And even when I wasn't a huge fan of this song, I still loved Stevie's harmonica. All in all, it was a well-done version of Deuce. Now, there may be a little auto-tuning involved. At least it, it sounds that way to me. But I don't think auto-tune was hugely popular back then. Um, so I'm not saying that it didn't exist, but I don't know if major artists were using it at all. Let's just say that I believe Lenny's vocals got some cleanup in the studio, and then we can we can leave it at that. All right, next up is Hard Luck Woman. This was written by Paul Stanley, sung by Garth Brooks, produced by Alan Reynolds, and additional musicians on this song include Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Yes, this is a solid cover of Hard Luck Woman, but there's something about Garth's vocals that didn't thrill me. I can't exactly put my finger on it, but there there was something missing. Truth be told, my all-time favorite version of Hard Luck Woman is from an acoustic performance where Paul sang the lead vocals. That one was a classic. But here we have Garth Brooks with Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley recording Hard Luck Woman. And not much has changed for this version. It's, it's a straight-up cover of the song that was hyped up because A, Garth Brooks was doing a cover of a Kiss song, and B, Paul and Gene were playing on it. But when all is said and done, there is nothing overwhelming about this. First of all, it would make sense that Garth would cover a Kiss ballad like this. If, if you want to wow me, have Garth cover Let Me Go Rock and Roll or God of Thunder. That would be something different. Instead, we're given a vanilla version of Hard Luck Woman. Yeah, it was popular, and lots of people loved it, and Garth fans were all like, woo! But in the end, it was it was meh. It's not a bad version of the song, but it doesn't really dazzle in any way. It doesn't have any pop or, or change that makes it decidedly different. It, pretty much every other song on this record had something that, that gave it a little twist, but Hard Luck Woman... It just it was so pedestrian. It was plain vanilla is what we get. Does it taste good? Sure, but it's certainly not a peanut butter hot fudge sundae. Alright, next up is the song She. And this was written by Gene Simmons and Stephen Cornell and sung by Anthrax. And it was produced by Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. This song was almost not included on the record. Excuse me. I remember reading in an interview after this album was released that Gene was talking about Anthrax's um, version of She. In the, in the article, Gene was talking about Anthrax's version of She. And he said something to the effect that when Anthrax approached him to be included on this album, Gene was like, eh, why should we include you? You've already done two Kiss cover songs on other albums that have been released. Why should Anthrax do another cover of a Kiss song? And then Gene said he heard their version and he knew that it had to be included. And I personally, I am certainly thankful that this song made the cut. Anthrax took She 
and just cranked it to 11. They did a magnificent version of a classic Kiss song that had its roots all the way back to Wicked Lester, where it was nothing more than a soft rock song with flutes. It's interesting to see how this song has evolved over the years. At one point in my fandom, this was my favorite Kiss song. Now, these days it's still in the top 10, but it's probably no longer my favorite. Um, from the opening crunch of the guitar riff, you just know this is going to be a spectacular version of the song. And it is. Anthrax does a magnificent job. And they molded She into a heavy metal masterpiece. Not that the song wasn't amazing before, but they just found a way to make it heavier while keeping the original footprint of the song. A little more feedback, a little more buzz in the guitar solo, heavier riffs, but all the while keeping the same look and feel of the original She. This really is one of the best covers on the entire album, and it, it's obvious why it had to be included on the record. I mean, regardless of how many Kiss covers Anthrax did, She is simply brilliant. They even find a way to incorporate the live version of the jam toward the end of the song and give it the live in-studio feel before pumping out the final two notes and bringing the song to a dead stop. It's just so well done. I mean, Anthrax has always been a professional band that I feel never got enough attention, even during their heyday in the 80s. They're always a bit underrated, in my opinion. So to have them appear on a Kiss record and turn it and turn in what is close to the best song on the record, that, that just made me happy. And give the band a little more exposure, and, and maybe maybe because of that, you know, maybe they picked up some new fans because they put uh, their version of She on, on this record. All right, next up is Christine 16, and this was written by Gene Simmons, sung by the Jim Blossoms, and it was produced by Cliff Norrell and the Jim Blossoms. And... One of my favorite lines on the entire album actually comes from this song, and it, and it was not an original line, and, and we'll get to that in a moment. When Kiss My Ass came out, the Jim Blossoms were at the height of their popularity, backed on the strength of the album, New Miserable Experience. And while... They were a rock band. They certainly weren't a hard rock band. So to hear their cover of a Kiss song was going to be interesting. And the Jim Blossoms did what was probably the most straight-on cover of any song on the record. I mean, no changes were really made. And the changes that were made were so subtle that they possibly even went unnoticed. Even the spoken lines of Gene were included. You know, this, the lines that Gene speaks in the original version. And the only noticeable change comes at the end of the song, which is also where my favorite line comes in. And it's, it's when Robin Wilson starts saying at the end of the song, I don't usually say things like this to girls your age. And then he repeats it a couple of times. He says, I don't usually say things like this to girls your age. And then he says, I don't usually, well, sometimes. Now, I don't know what it is about that, but that always cracks me up. I always got a big laugh out of that. Um, I don't know if it's his delivery or just the way the song incorporates the lines or if it's something else, but... To me, it's just, it's always been an enjoyable moment of the song, that, that and it always, it always got me. It always got me for a good laugh. Other than that, the Jim Blossoms do a soft rock, light FM version of Christine 16, which these days is totally fine with me. But when I wore a younger man's clothes, I loved hard and heavy. So 
I wasn't a huge fan of this version of the song right off the bat. And even now, many, many years later, I, I do have to admit, it's a vanilla cover. It's not a bad cover, but I don't, I don't think that the Jim Blossoms did anything to make it their own, um, like you know most of the other bands on the record did with the songs they covered. Uh, Jim Blossom seemed content to just reproduce the same exact song. And whether that's good or bad, I guess that depends on the listener. Um, you know, to me, it's not so good. It's average. But I do like, again, I do like their version of the song. And I know it's not the hardest Kiss song. You know, it's not the heaviest Kiss song to begin with. But it, it, it's light FM version. But again, okay by me. I like it. I don't, I don't dislike it. Next up is Rock and Roll All Night, and this was written by Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, and this version is sung by Toad the Wet Sprocket, and this version is produced by Gavin Mackalop. I hope I pronounced that one right. Now, I don't think there is a song that I have had a more emotional relationship with than this one. First off, have you heard the Toad version of this song? Did you even know who Toad the Wet Sprocket were when this song was released on this compilation? I did. I knew the band well, and I liked them a lot, especially their huge 90s hit, Walk on the Ocean. So when I saw they were doing a cover of the most famous Kiss song ever recorded, I was intrigued. I didn't even know that Toad the Wet Sprocket was a fan of Kiss. And then I heard their version. And I saw red. I was livid. I sat there and I screamed that they destroyed the song. They made a mockery of it. How in the hell could Gene and Paul let this pass? What in the world was wrong with them? We got a version of rock and roll all night that sounded like a folk song gone wrong this was going to be a constant skip every time i played this album then i went through a stage where i just made fun of this song i would laugh about it with my best buddies it was also um, my best buddy rather who was also a huge kiss fan um and we'd sing in a fake falsetto voice and we'd slowly drone on and on ah Wanna rock and roll all night. And for a while I would poke fun and laugh whenever I thought of this song. And then, I don't know, I don't know if it was a year later, two years later, more than that, more years later, my musical taste started to evolve and I started to get a deeper appreciation for other types of music outside my normal window. And I played this song again for some reason or another. And I didn't laugh. And I didn't poke fun. And I actually found myself enjoying the music and the melody and the song itself. And then it dawned on me. This version this version of the song wasn't all that bad. It was, it was actually pretty good. Uh, from there, my affliction grew. And these days, I think that Toad's version of Rock and Roll All Night is one of the most brilliant recreations of a Kiss song ever done. Now, it took me many years to get to that level of appreciation. So if you're hearing me say this and you're screaming at your podcast player, I get it. I get it. But give it time. 
you may grow into a deeper appreciation for this song. You may actually learn to love this song like I do. Uh, honestly, when I need to hear a different type of kiss, I turn to this album, um, and most specifically, I turn to this song. Now, it took me years, but I love this cover. It's quite possibly my favorite version of Rock and Roll All Night. And those of you who have listened to this show from the beginning, you know, you know my history with this song. So, you know all about how I feel about this song and all its incarnations. Um, but yeah, quite possibly could be my favorite version of Rock and Roll All Night these days. Check in with me again in a couple years could be something else all right next up is calling dr love this was written by gene simmons it was sung by shandy's addiction and it was produced by billy gold gould gould g-o-u-l-d gould when you look at the players in this supergroup that got together to record this song you would think that this was going to be an amazing mega hit i mean we're talking about tom morello brad wick and billy gould that's some great talent right there this was going to be amazing, right? Well, not necessarily. Now, I'm not going to say this is a bad version of Calling Dr. Love, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, yes, I am. I am going to say this is a bad version of Calling Dr. Love because I just listened to it again, and this crap is not good at all. I still listen to it when it comes on the album, but it's, it's not a good version of the song. At first, when the spoken version of They Call Me Dr. Love, I thought this was going to be cool, different. But that wears thin after the first time. And by the time we get to the 17th trip around the spoken calling Dr. Love, the, the gimmick has worn thin. The gig is up, and I'm just waiting for this song to end so we can hear the next one. So yeah, this is a bad cover. It's different, and I guess I can say that I appreciate the effort that the band put into trying something different but to me it was it was a wasted effort i mean their cover is just bad i like that members of rage against the machine and faith no more got together to to make a group and record a song for a kiss tribute album i mean i loved rage in the 90s and i've always loved faith no more but even their union couldn't produce something amazing and it happens, and it's unfortunate, but such is the way of the music world. I mean, sometimes you produce beautiful beauties, and sometimes not so much. All right, next up is Going Blind. This was written by Gene Simmons and Stephen Cornell, sung by Donna Sewer Jr., and produced by Jay Massis, M-A-S-C-I-S. I hope that's pronounced correctly, but that's why I spell these things. I didn't really know Dinosaur Jr. when this record came out. I mean, I'm sure that I had heard them, heard of them, and I probably heard a song of theirs on the radio, but I couldn't tell you the name of the song, and I certainly couldn't tell you anything else about the band. I mean, that's what happened with this covers albums. Parts were recorded by groups you never heard of, or newly formed supergroups that would never be heard from again. And, and all that is okay, because they would all live on in infamy through um, surviving on a KISS tribute record. Now, at this point in my KISS fandom, which is 1994, Going Blind had become a cherished and beloved song. It would, it would go on to garner even more attention after the band played it um, unplugged on the MTV special, but it was still near and dear to my heart prior to that. So to see it on the tribute album was nice, 
<coughs> excuse me, but in the back of my head, I kept thinking, whomever did this song, please, please don't screw it up. And thankfully, they didn't. I mean, Dinosaur Jr. took the original Kiss ballad and they made it darker. Now, I don't know if it's the bass lines or the drums or even the deeper vocals, but something about this version of the song is really dark. And there are strings added in the mix, which just help add to all the magic. And, and all this is done while keeping the same structure of the original song. I have to say that I really enjoyed Dinosaur Jr.'s cover of this tune. I mean, I didn't know the band prior, and I didn't really listen to any of their stuff after, but their version of Going Blind hit the mark. Like I said, I was worried that it was going to get screwed up, and, and not at all. They even nailed the guitar solo and made it sing. They, they took a lesser-known Kiss song, lesser-known at the time. Going Blind was one of those deep cuts that did not get a lot of fanfare. And they made it blister, and they made it sing, giving it some popularity in the process. Really, really just remarkable and amazing. A fantastic, fantastic cover. All right, next up is Strutter, and this was written by Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons. And this version is sung by Extreme, and it was produced. This uh, song was produced by Nuno Betancourt. This is one of my favorite covers on the entire record, and, and the biggest reason for that is because I am a huge Extreme fan. And this, even though it was a cover, was new Extreme music. Um, you know, so since the moment I heard Kid Ego. I love the band Extreme, and so to see them cover a Kiss song, it was like a dream scenario finally happening. Now, Extreme did a wonderful funk rock version of Strutter, which that, that's true for their type of music. And on their debut, Extreme may have been more hair metal, but when their second album was released, they were all in on the funk metal soul fusion. And and they would ride that style of music to a pretty successful career. And and one stop on that career was covering Strutter for a Kiss tribute album. Now, Extreme slowed the song down. They added in some funk grooves, and they, they changed up some parts to suit their style of play. Is it different? Absolutely. And what that meant was that some Kiss fans were going to hate it. And I get that. There are a few songs on this record that Kiss fans were made excuse me, were mad about when it first came out, and some are still mad about it to this day. But I liked the different versions of the songs. Well, for the most part, anyway. I mean, it did take a number of years for me to like rock and roll all night. Now, Extreme Strutter was something that I liked right away, though. I mean, was I biased? Yeah, probably. Like I said, I was a huge Extreme fan, but... My bias doesn't take away from the fact that the band did a great cover. And they even added in shout-outs to other Kiss songs, whether that be singing Shout It, Shout It, Shout It Out Loud during the chorus, um, adding in some riffs of God of Thunder during the bridge, or their big ending where Gary Sharon does a vocal impression of Detroit Rock City. They packed in as much Kiss as they could to their four and a half minutes. Great bass lines, grand guitar work from uh, Mr. Nuno Betancourt, as always, and solid vocals from Gary Sharon, all added up to a solid cover of a classic Kiss song, one that was impressive and well-performed. And Extreme delivered it like they always do, being an underdog band and then proving everyone wrong. Alright, next up is Plaster Caster, and this is written by Gene Simmons and sung by the Lemonheads, and it was produced by Tom Hamilton and the Lemonheads. 
And this is a this is a pretty straight on cover of Plaster Castering. You know, compared to most of the other covers on this album, this one's pretty vanilla as well. Um, but the Lemonheads were riding a wave of popularity at the time of this release behind their mega hit "Into Your Arms." So. I was excited to see them cover a Kiss song, and I was more excited that it was Plaster Caster, which at the time was it was a pretty deep cut. It did not get the attention that it would have uh, during the Unplugged years, and and to think about it now, it kind of it kind of went into obscurity again after the Unplugged years. Now I've always loved this song from the moment I first heard it on Love Gun, even if I didn't know what it meant at the time. And hearing the Lemonheads do their version was a joy in 1994. I mean, the cover was held up. The, the, excuse me, the cover has held up well over the years, mostly due to its straight-on approach to the song. There was nothing significantly different from the original, and, and that wasn't necessarily bad. It was just a straight-on cover of Plaster Caster done by a popular band. No spice added, just straightforward Kiss cover. I don't really have much else to say about it, so I guess we'll just kind of leave it there. The next song is, <clears throat> excuse me, Detroit Rock City. And this was written by Paul Stanley and Bob Ezrin. This version is performed by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. And it's produced by Matt Hyde and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. And from the opening answering machine message of Gene Simmons, leaving a message for the band, telling the band that they could not cover Detroit Rock City to the final beat of the song this version by the mighty mighty boss tones is incredible they stayed so true to the original version on destroyer and they recorded a covers masterpiece we even get to hear the jingling of the car keys and the squeal of the tires just like the destroyer version and then the boss tones took what they do and they performed a kiss song for the ages now i'll admit I'm not a huge fan of the Boss Tones. When they recorded their version of Detroit Rock City, they had achieved a lot of fame with their song, The Impression That I Get, which I liked, but I didn't really care for the rest of their material. I mean, I wasn't a huge ska fan back then, and I just thought that they were an average band. My best friend, however, was a huge fan, and he sang their praises all the time. I just thought he was crazy, or maybe deaf. But I had to tell him when this record was released that the Boss Tones did what could have been the best song on Kiss My Ass. Personally, I think I think this is the best song on the album. I know Anthrax She was spectacular, but the Boss Tones really got into the flavor of Kiss, and they were able to keep the song rocking while still sticking to their style of music. They made a hard rocking song that included horns, and this was long before rock bands synced up with symphonies to do live orchestra rock. I mean, the Boston's were trendsetters with this song, and, and they just absolutely nailed Detroit Rock City. I feel like I'm listening to the original, but the horns are keeping it modern. Now, these days, I have a much finer appreciation for ska and for rock music with horns. So the song has only grown on me over the years, and every time I hear it, it just gets better and better. I mean, I love that Dickie Barrett went for the darker gravel vocals for this song, like like a light version of death metal. His gravel vocals contrast the horns and just they just make the song blend into a beautiful synchronization of rock, jazz, and pop. 
And yes, when I play this version of the song in my car, I do find my foot pushing down on the pedal a little harder, and the car might be moving a little bit faster. Really a divine, divine job by the Boss Tones. Alright, next up is the last song on the album, and this is Black Diamond, written by Paul Stanley and sung by, um, well, it's not sung by anybody, performed by Yoshiki and the American Symphony Orchestra, and produced by Yoshiki. And wow, just just wow is all I can say. This version of Black Diamond actually gives me chills. It is so well done. It is so fitting to have Black Diamond covered by a symphony orchestra. Uh, this was done pro- just prior to the movement of hard rock bands pairing with orchestras um, at their concerts. And maybe, just maybe, this planted the seed for what would happen on Alive 4. Brilliant and beautiful, the Yoshiki Black Diamond is a true masterpiece and a great ending to this covers album. I will admit, I was skeptical when this first came out. I mean, it just it just didn't seem to fit the record. Even after you include Stevie Wonder and, and Lenny Kravitz doing Deuce, it just, it just seemed like this song was a misfit. But after a few listens, I quickly realized how wrong I was. And, and even to this day, I love this version of Black Diamond. At the time of release, I enjoyed classical music. I mean, I never went out of my way to listen to it, but when it was on, I wouldn't turn it off. And once again, KISS was expanding my horizons by showing me what could be done with a symphony when someone put the thought and the time into it. I mean, I love the haunting strings. I love the slow opening and how it crashes into the verses and chorus. I love the way everything comes together at the climax of the song and then just bursts in a wave of energy and sound. Now, I don't think this particular song increased my love for classical music, but it certainly helped me appreciate it more. And and after this album was released, I did start seeking out some of the great classical art artists like Berlioz, Mozart, Bach, Tchaikovsky. And I listened to them a lot for a while. I mean, fantastic music, especially when you want to sit and relax and think, something that I certainly do not do enough of these days. I also like that Yoshiki's Black Diamond contained no lyrics, instrumental by the orchestra only, and it was fascinating. Of course, I knew where the lyrics belonged, and I would add them in my head when listening to the song, but... The instrumental version is just a masterpiece as it is, and brilliant and bright. I mean, this is a grand addition to the Tribute album. It's also a great closer, and it's a grand way to finish off the Tribute. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Psycho Circus Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. If you have a comment you want to share, you want to drop your thoughts on uh, on this covers album, um, email me, psychocircuspodcast at gmail.com. That's psychocircuspodcast at gmail.com. Please be sure to go to iTunes and leave a review. Every review helps. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at RyoV on Twitter at R-Y-O-V-I-E on Twitter. Be sure to tune in next time where I cover another home video. (laughs) From having no home videos, we now have a plethora of them. But uh, next time, we will cover Kiss My Ass 
the video. And until then, the carnival has just begun.